Well, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And to be honest, I'm only here for the stock grants. My start, my Spark Church shares vest every six months or so. So I figure by the time I hit 50, I'll have enough money. Uh, and I'll be able to retire to Aruba or Tahiti. I haven't really figured that out yet. But until then, I'm in the Bay Area, and during the week, I work at a tech company, uh, helping to organize labor resources for various projects. As part of that organizing effort, I meet with the same three people, three teammates, every Friday morning from 9 a.m. to about 11 to 12 p.m. And this has been for years, every Friday, three hours, two to three hours a week. Now, the four of us are very different in our life experiences and perspectives, but after a couple years of doing this, we've become very comfortable with each other, maybe even a little too comfortable. This past Friday, during one of the lulls in our conversation, one of my coworkers, who knows I'm a pastor and who would self-identify as none, or spiritual but not religious, he asked me, my Buddhist friend wants to know, do you think she's going to burn in hell? Matter of fact, do you think I'm going to burn in hell? Now, this is not an HR-approved topic at our company at 4, 9 a.m. on a Friday. But us debating the pros and cons of religion and faith is a fairly regular topic of discussion. At the same time, I'm careful about seeming to evangelize because I have this captive audience every single week. And whether they like it or not, I'm there. And I don't want them to feel uncomfortable at work. So I soft-pedaled it. And I answered, honestly, I don't know. I actually don't know. And I'm not comfortable enough to say that I know for myself. Jesus said certain things that seemingly set a clear criteria for who's in and who's out. And there are examples of where people go to heaven and don't meet that criteria. So, I don't know. For certain folks, those criteria would apply. And my coworker, who's a huge fan of sarcasm and pragmatism, replied, See, you're not being direct about this. Neither were her Christian coworkers. Just say it. Do you think I'm going to burn in hell? Well, we went into the nuances of Christian faith with the usual critiques about American Christianity specifically, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, syncretism of nationalism and capitalism. Five minutes later, and after a few bursts of actual work, he gave his conclusion. You guys are all over the place. The Catholics have a liberal pope and conservative bishops. Protestants talk about Christian nationalism and prosperity gospel. And you keep saying that you are all trying to live out this objective principle, love your neighbor, Subjectively, that makes no sense. You talk about loving people and then you run over them for a buck or fight wars in God's name to make money. For all of you, whatever you want is what you say God wants. So you're all over the place. I appreciate the folks who are fundamentalists and go hard because where they stand is super clear. Who knows what you all actually believe? The title of today's message is Judge, not Yes, Lest Ye Be Judged. Actually, it should be different. Judge, yes, ye be not judged. And you're going to find out why I screwed that up shortly. Uh, today's continuation of our walk through the Gospel of John. Now, for the last few weeks, we have been talking about the final address that Jesus delivered at the Last Supper before his arrest, torture, and death. This address is found in chapters 13 through 17 in John, with the first three chapters showing Jesus trying to provide context for the disciples about what they've seen and what they've done over the last three years. And he's providing encouragement about what they're about to undergo, trials and tribulations because of their commitment to Jesus. In the final chapter of this address, however, Jesus switches from speaking to his followers to speaking about his followers. In what is known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus advocates to God the Father for continued support for the disciples, saying, I did what was asked of me. 
I've given them your word. I've shown them who you are. Now, in my absence, carry them through the end. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So one of the clear themes you're hearing there is the word oneness. Jesus asks that the oneness of his followers reflect the relationship between Jesus and God the Father, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. The unity of followers serves as proof of the gospel to the world around them. What can we draw from this? Our unity as Christians is a clear part of sharing the good news of Jesus. It's part of our witness. It's part of our collective testimony to the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, and who we were meant to be. And according to my coworker, we have screwed that up because to his eyes, we are absolutely divided. For our time together, I'd like us to ask a few questions. Number one, are Christians divided? Number two, why are we divided? And number three, what can we do about it? We're going to fix it all right here in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> now, for the first question, are Christians divided? The answer is yes. yes, absolutely. And if you don't, if you need proof, just look at your social media accounts, look at your personal schedules. Who are you interacting with? Who are you talking to? Who are you avoiding talking to? Now, how many of them are Christians whose posts you skip over? And how many of them have you, quote unquote, lost touch with? As if you need more proof, take a look at any American news source, and you'll see headlines like these. And you'll also see videos like these in our media. I still think the president we have now is fake and fraudulent. Can I get a witness right there? Firebrand evangelical pastors are attracting large congregations by preaching politics from the pulpit. On the platform, I have no friends. Here's the Bible says, boom, we're going to go with it. They're sermonizing a brand of social conservatism defined by conspiracy and apocalyptic rhetoric. These charges are not speaking against abortion, against all this trafficking, and our pastor does because it's the truth. But a growing division over radicalization reveals that the largest religious group in the country may be at war with itself. Has the church been this divided in recent memory? Not in my life. They've been radicalized in their approach to politics. You know, when we have the ability to say that God is on our side, it allows us to justify, you know, all kinds of, of cruelty. Any ministry's emphasis on any form of partisanship is concerning. The results of this power struggle will reshape politics and civic life in America. <laughs> Christians have always believed things that the world thought. That is nuts. These people are crazy. At the end of the day, I'm just willing to look crazy. But there's a lot more support out there than there's Now, I watch something like that, and I think firebrand evangelical pastors like me were getting the short end of the stick. If you don't, you're not laughing at that you don't know me. But <laughs> it's funny. Of course, there's sensationalism in this, in this video, and in all of it. And the more moderate voices on both sides of the arguments are often not sought. But the demands to take a stand on one issue or another are forcing us to go to the polls. Not the voting polls, but the polls of the spectrum. So are we divided? 
Yes. Now, the question, next question is, why are we divided? Why do you guys think we're divided like this? Don't be afraid. Anybody. I'm sorry? Many of us don't read our We don't read our Bibles. Good point. The other people are wrong. <laughs> Potentially, yes. All are fallible, including us. Potentially. Anybody else? Yes, Dominic. Social media it does push the argument in different places we don't want it to go. Duncan. We're just humans. Ah, we're just humans. Very insightful, young man. Anyone else? Yes, Ivan. Fear. Fear. Good one. Always a constant. Sean. Professed beliefs change to reflect health goals rather than the other way around. That is true. Professed, I can't say it all what you said, but yes, professed views do change and things get shifted. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit. Um, Gary. Upbringing. Upbringing. Absolutely. Anyone else? Yes. Lack of diversity in our communities. Lack of diversity in our communities. Yes. Tony. And my sermon's done. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> no, you're all right. All of your experience, all of those ideas are absolutely right. Um, I'm going to try to get us all on the same page, though, by hitting one specific thing, which is actually related to what Sean was talking about. Uh, so let's start here by looking at the fruit of our division. A few study released last month suggested that by 2070, Christianity will be a minority religion in the United States. And one of the reasons for this is religious switching. According to Pew, we estimate that between 30 ages of 13, oh, sorry. We estimate that between the ages of 15 and 29, 31% of Americans who were raised as Christians become religiously unaffiliated, a group that includes atheists, agnostics, or those who describe their faith as nothing in particular. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they give up all their religious beliefs. It just means that um, they, they have a belief in a God or a universal spirit. The bottom line is that although Christianity is by far the majority faith in the United States, religious switching, beginning in the late teen years, has resulted in a net flow of millions of Americans from Christianity to unaffiliated. The study then references all sorts of factors that you guys mentioned as well, such as transmission. Faith engagement is decreasing across generations as parents pass less and less of the faith to their children, and then their children pass less and less of that faith to their children, and so on. It's basically snowballing. There's also age, gender, education, geography, and of course the factor that we're all familiar with, politics. Seven in ten adults who are raised Christian but are now unaffiliated are Democrats or Democratic-leaning independents. Some scholars argue that disaffiliation from Christianity is driven by an association between Christianity and political conservatism that has intensified in recent decades. Some research indicates that Americans tend to develop firm, enduring political identities earlier than religious ones. Political identities come first, and their political views may influence their religious beliefs more than the other way around. So this division from Christianity begins with a division within Christianity. And politics isn't just politics. It encompasses everything. Age, gender, education, geography, immigration, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, macroeconomics, history, and so on. The truth is, we're human beings, homo sapiens, wise people, created to consider, made to question. And while our roots or, or root origins may be the same, we're all different. We all have different 
predilections and preconceived notions, different likes and dislikes, different lives, different experiences. What we already believe influences what we're likely to believe. And we Christians, choosing to follow in spirit and truth, have converged around the person of Jesus. But we don't come as empty vessels. We bring our likes and our dislikes, our converging and diverging experiences. And our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with his followers are shaped by all of this. So we come together knowing naturally that what we can accomplish together is so much greater than what we can do apart. And knowing spiritually that Jesus' desire for us is unity. Naturally, people support their views with Christian scripture and tradition, and people are passionate about their views. And passionate people, in a genuine desire, genuine desire to seek the best for others, can be forceful and aggressive in that pursuit. And if we do not consider that we might be wrong about some things, we might be wrong, we might become unyielding in our views to the point of thinking and speaking in absolutes. A true Christian would never hold that view. A real follower of Jesus would only believe this view. Scripture clearly states that we should uphold this behavior. The Bible clearly says that that behavior is evil. Now, we can package this as a true Christian faith to someone who is seeing and believing the opposite. And there's no alternative Christian views because anything less than the true Christian faith is wishy-washy, conforming to the world, backsliding, ignoring God's will in favor of your own desires. A relationship with Jesus is no longer one that allows for change, for failure, for reconciliation. No, a relationship with Jesus is now codified as following this narrow path. And anything but this path isn't real faith. So what if I can't experience, reconcile this path with what I'm seeing and hearing and experiencing? Something's got to give. So we draw lines and we behave accordingly. I'm sorry but I don't believe that this is what Jesus is asking of us. I'm sorry, but I don't interpret Scripture the same way. And in tougher cases, there's escalation. This relationship is toxic. You're drifting away from the true faith. What you're saying is heretical. This is demonic. And so we divide into different small groups, into different church communities, into different geographic communities. And more and more, we divide ourselves from Christianity altogether. It's just too hard. Jesus becomes the baby thrown out with the murky bathwater that is the Christian faith. And it may seem that I'm speaking of a progressive Christian in a conservative Christian community, but I'm not. The same scenario plays out with conservative Christians and progressive Christian communities and everything in between on multiple issues, or even just one. So, why are we divided? Well, you've shared your perspectives on it. Now, let me, allow me to share my hypothesis. This argument yes, does have a ton of holes. And it's not advocated even within my own household, much less by the other teachers and preachers and leaders of Spark, so keep that in mind. But I offer it now as a common jump-off point to consider John 17 and Jesus' apparent call for unity. In my mind, the question we are all debating through our thoughts and actions is, how does the kingdom of God come about? The answer defines how we see the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see God. And to simplify it even more, let's consider this statement. Judge not, lest ye be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These are Jesus' initial statements in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And it has been interpreted in many ways over the centuries. One common way, you can't judge anyone. 
If you judge anyone, then you'll be a hypocrite because you too make mistakes. That leads to two correlated ideas. First, never judge anyone ever. Since the standard you set for judging will be applied to you too, then to avoid your own behavior being scrutinized, don't judge anyone. Live and let live. Don't hold anyone accountable, and you won't be held accountable yourself. And if your coworker asks you if he's going to hell, you say no, because you don't want to go either. Now, there's a level of safety found in this interpretation. In Jewish Talmudic teaching, there's this idea of building fences around God's laws, or making additional, more restrictive, uh, severe restrictions as a precautionary measure against violating the Torah within. Afraid of breaking the law against cooking animal meat in its own mother's milk? Then avoid eating any meat and dairy together. Make the boundaries wider. In this case, are you afraid of judging someone hypocritically? Then don't judge at all. Play it safe. A second correlated idea. Only God can judge me. Thank you, Tupac. And you and everyone else is fallible, so there's only one person that is fit to judge, and that's God. So get off my back. I have permission to do whatever I like without any fear of individual condemnation or communal pushback. There's God, there's me, and then there's all y'all. So mind your own business and keep your judgment to yourself. And if your coworker asks you if you think he's going to hell, you say, that's up to God. Now, I'm playing this up a little bit to make a point, but the idea that only God can and should judge does exist within the church. And there's safety in that interpretation as well. Because just because an individual or a community has concerns about your behavior, that doesn't mean that God isn't calling you to do it. We see that throughout the Bible with Abraham, Moses, David, all of the prophets, and Jesus. Sometimes God asks you to do what's unpopular. So not caring about popular opinion actually gives you some freedom to do that thing. Now there are clear problems with both of these statements, and we can actually find the counter-arguments to these statements in the Bible. You see, Jesus didn't just offer these, this words, judge not lest we be judged, as a maxim to cover all circumstances. They're actually just two statements in a massive sermon that Jesus is delivering to an audience early in his ministry on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And all around these statements, do not judge. Jesus is saying, no, judge. And here are the standards to keep to keep as you judge, and here are the fences to put around those standards. So after the do not judge statement, Jesus says this, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. How do you know who a dog is and who a pig is, who will misuse and abuse the good things you give to them? Well, you have to judge them according to God's standards. He then says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We usually think about this as something that we're requesting from God for help. But in my mind, this is actually about judgment. How do you know which standards to apply in which situation? Ask God. He'll provide it for you. He'll give you the wisdom. He'll give you the insight. Later on, he says, Enter by the narrow gates, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. God wants you to follow him, and the path that he's chosen for you is narrow. So you can't just follow anyone. But how do you know who's a false prophet leading you astray? You have to judge them 
according to the fruits of their labor. What are the results of their actions? And what are, the, what are those actions in line with God's standards? Those are the things that you're looking for. And then later on he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my heavenly Father. In other words, just because someone talks the talk doesn't mean that they walk the walk. Judge accordingly. And later then he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, if you can walk the walk and talk the talk, your judgment, whatever it might be, will be on solid footing, a house built on the rock. So, the interpretation of do not judge anyone ever is taken apart by what Jesus says afterwards. That leads us to the alternative interpretation, which is, I will judge according to God's standards. That leads to its corollary, which is, as long as I don't sin, I can judge everyone and anyone. Since I am without sin, I am not a hypocrite. And I have zero problem with meeting God's standard for living. Therefore, I pass the criteria for judging others with impunity. I can cast all the stones. And I will, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of those I judge. People need to be corrected. And if your non-Christian coworker asks if you think he's going to hell, you tell him, you sure are, you better repent. The problem here is that this corollary is built on a false premise. The truth is, I sin. I may hide it well. I may say it's, that my sin pales in comparison to others. But I sin. And I'm capable of performing any sin because I'm human. However, since I've taken the responsibility of divine judgment... I hold myself and others to God's standards minus the grace. Therefore, for the grace of God, go I? No. It's, I would never do that. Or, it's impossible for me to even think of that, much less do that. It's all about willpower. And those who sin are weak-willed. Not me. I might overcompensate when I see sin that I struggle with, but I'll just come down extra hard on those offenders. And, I also might find comfort in our crazy, violent world by imposing a system that offers me certainty and purpose. I should find that certainty and purpose through relationship with Jesus, but the system's easier to manage. So, There's an alternative to all of this, however. I will judge according to God's standards with grace and humility. We remain fallible in this system and capable of taking any of these other approaches in a moment so we stay rooted in God. Our relationship with God, a loving relationship where God keeps us accountable and upholds justice, and where God forgives and reconciles, and where God finds joy in our interactions. That relationship gives us the basis by which we can judge others with love and mercy. Says who? Says Jesus in the same sermon. He provides guidance about God's kingdom standards that we've already seen. Not just, how, not just about how to judge others, but how to judge ourselves. Now, in this verse of Matthew 5, you might be familiar with salt and light. Jesus is saying, we are called to be salt and light. Be salt and light. That is, bring out the good in others and call attention to the good that you see. And in this verse, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Anger drives murderous thoughts. So displays of anger should be considered precursors to murderous acts. 
When we're angry, we have to be very careful and we have to try to reconcile with that person as soon as possible because that anger can control us and our judgments. And here's the big one. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, your response to any injury should be measured and proportional. But hey, your response doesn't have to be punitive. In fact, it can be gracious and merciful towards the person hurting you. Why? Because God loves everyone. And in fact, he wants the best even for those who stand against us. That's the standard that God has set even for himself. So if you want to keep God's standards, do good things, including judgment, for the right reasons. Don't do it for the attention or the praise you might receive. Do them because they're good things and because it's what God would do. And do these things knowing that if you need to sacrifice something of yourself to make that happen, God's got you covered. They will be added to you. The grace and mercy that you extend to someone who hurts you, God will provide it. The desire for vengeance and control that you forfeit when you do this, God covers that too. We are called to judge others. But let me put another fence around that, this is personal, that I try to employ. In order to avoid judging others wrongly, try judging their thoughts and their actions instead. Not the person, their thoughts and their actions. To me, one true identity does not change. It's rooted in our existence and in our purpose, which is given to us by God. But our thoughts and actions can change. The labels of good person and bad person are inaccurate because all people are capable of both the greatest and the worst of human behavior. And the consequences don't change if you focus on thoughts and actions. Someone who's doing something right will be rewarded. Someone who's doing something wrong should be held accountable. What does change is that you don't label someone as good or bad. You see them as God sees them, as his child. So when you hold this interpretation and your coworker asks you if you think he's going to hell, you say, I don't know. Do you think that you're going to hell? Why do you believe God would do that? And that's really what I should have said then. So judge thoughts and actions, at least for me. How? Through our relationship with God. Contrary to our understanding, God makes it so that judgment can be an act of love toward our neighbor. And that feels really weird. But it can be an act of love. Now, having established all of that, let me ask the question again. Why are we divided? My hypothesis, flawed as it is, is that our division stems from how we think we should think about the kingdom of God within ourselves and within our world. Now, we're all Christians. Well, a lot of us here are Christians. Wanting to see the kingdom of God come to pass on earth as it is in heaven. That's our common ground. That's our common prayer. The problem is, how does the kingdom of God come to pass? One possibility. We make it happen. I'm in God's army, leading the charge. I'm God's judge, appointed and purified by God, made worthy to judge. God will reign, and my judgment against sinners, individual and communal, will be God's instrument. By God, I am going to make the kingdom of God come to pass. Second possibility. We wait for it. No, God's doing all the work, not us. So we maintain a posture of readiness. But until God moves, we stay still. Prayerfully, of course. And on the watch for the next step. God is working out the salvation of every individual. And if that person's not ready to change, then the person's not ready. And if the systems aren't ready to change, systems aren't ready. Let's just let God continue to work. 
And there's support for both of those views in Scripture and in how we see the Holy Spirit moving in our world. Naturally, as humans, we lean towards the one that sounds best to us, the one that matches our style, our demeanor, our expectations. But if we lean too far in one direction, we minimize or we ignore the other side. When we, take, we make it happen too far, dominionism, Christian nationalism, and enforcement of security and certainty over freedom and individual choice. When we take wait for it too far, we disengage from the world. We create a separate parallel American Christian culture. We don't hold individuals or systems accountable to God's standards, including not addressing issues of creation, care, and social justice because none of it matters. When God comes, or the rapture comes, all this will be settled, so why bother? In my opinion, the best approach is probably the one right in the middle, which is we work alongside God, humbly. His work is constant, and so is ours, but our involvement changes, how we work changes. So we might miss his call, and we may push when God wants us to wait, and we may wait when God wants us to push. We're human. God understands. But once we're aware of God's timing, we need to know, is it time to push or time to wait? Once we're aware of God's direction, we need to know, is it time to push or is it time to wait? So as a theoretical exercise, this may be helpful. But when you're on social media and your Jesus-following cousin posts something upsetting, when you're conversing with a person, uh, with a friend from church in person, and that person says something outlandish, and when you're at the Thanksgiving table and a loved one says something seemingly antithetical to the God you know and love, what do you do? I don't know. And that's the end of our sermon. Please bow your heads as I pray for God's blessing as we leave. Of course I'm kidding. Kinda. I honestly don't know what you should do in any of those circumstances because however you decide to act will be based on you and that person's relationship with Jesus. And I don't have that knowledge off, right off the bat. But I do have an inkling based on what Jesus says in this prayer at the end of the Last Supper and in the Sermon on the Mount. So here are seven inklings that I'd like to share with you. First of all, know that the building of the kingdom of God is messy and long-suffering work. And as part of that, know that people are complicated <laughs> and everyone believes themselves to be making rational choices. I'm on the freeway sometimes like, why? Why? But it makes total sense to them. And if I was in their, in their shoes, I probably would understand why they, why? You know, it makes total sense. People ultimately want what's best for others, even if that goal or the means to get there are in question. Conservatives want to conserve what is good. That's a good thing. Progressives want to progress towards what is better. That's a good thing. Look for the things that you do agree upon and find unity in those things. Your disagreement may be intense, but a person is not defined by their position on a single issue or multiple issues. Again, a person is not defined by their position on a single issue or multiple issues, and neither are you. Related to that, know that your position is valid. If you believe yourself to be right, continue to do so. If God has shown you that your position is correct, absolutely share it and defend it accordingly. Just don't do it blindly. Remember that you're human. You could be wrong. Test your position and be willing to change if new information arises. In fact, seek out that new information. If your position withstands real scrutiny, then maybe it's actually worth maintaining. 
Be ready to wrestle with God because God's ready to wrestle with you. And relate to all that, just because something already exists doesn't mean that it's good. There are plenty of bad, long-standing things in the world. And just because something is different doesn't mean that it's better than what exists. You can move from something bad to something worse. We have to be careful. Know that it's okay not to be sure. Just because someone demands that you take a side or you take action doesn't mean that you absolutely have to. It actually can be more destructive to take a position without considering it carefully, supporting it, and confirming it. We can end up fighting to the death over issues that we haven't considered just because we don't like, being, like, like uncertainty and we really don't like being wrong, so we'll just keep fighting. But doesn't Jesus speak out about lukewarmness in Revelation? Shouldn't we take a position on all things? If you're properly informed, absolutely. But interpretations are never simply black and white. There is nuance that every person is different. And we should always be careful about conforming to popular opinion, including popular opinion from Christian voices. Any statement of certainty that begins with, Jesus clearly said that, or Scripture firmly states that, should be critiqued. Know that division within the church is not new. One look at history and you'll see that division is more the norm than the exception within the church. Five examples. American Christians today are divided in what social justice means and how far to carry that. That's a variation on the battles that took place in the 50s and the 60s during which a Christian-led civil rights movement in the South, off to the top left, you might recognize that person, that civil rights movement was being halted by other prominent Christians who were saying, no, you're wrong about the need for equality. And also by other prominent Christians saying, yeah, actually, you're right, but don't rock the vote because you're causing division, and that's bad. Today, there are Christians that are seeking to create separate societies by Christians and for Christians. That also happened in the 1600s with the Puritans, who called themselves pilgrims to a new holy land. They came to America to seek religious freedom from the Church of England's corrupt practices, and then they instituted their own puritanical laws and customs that forced individuals to narrow their view and to focus on that path. Today, there are Christians who are divided over who to include in the church based on specific theology or ethnicity or status. This also happened 500 years ago in Western Europe. There's Martin Luther right there with his hammer. And wars were fought over these decisions. Also, 1,600 years ago, when church leaders exiled those with unorthodox views from their families, homes, and communities. One of my favorite stories is about uh, two people arguing at something called the Council of Nicaea. 325. And you have one person named Arius who's arguing about the nature of God. He's saying that God, uh, that nature of Jesus, Jesus actually isn't human. He's saying this. And Nicholas of Mira, who is Santa Claus, the person we, we call Santa Claus, he walked over and slapped him in the face and had him thrown out. I love that story. It exists. This division continues to exist. And the division happened right at the very rise of our faith 2,000 years ago. Look at the Bible. You'll see churches giving preferences to members based on wealth, status, and ethnicity. You'll see Peter doubting the inclusion of non-Jews. You'll see Paul persecuting followers of Jesus. And you'll see Jesus himself being persecuted by his own community of faith. And that's just the name of you. Division within the church is not new. And yet, faith in Jesus of Nazareth has been sustained and strengthened over the years. By God's grace, the church will weather today's challenges as well. But how well we weather them depends on our choices. A couple more. Know that division is necessary for change. In the 1800s, Frederick Douglass was an ordained black Christian preacher 
who demanded the end of slavery in America, in the face of many Christians who pointed to Scripture to say that slavery was God-ordained. He said, there is no struggle. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And that is true in all human endeavors, including the church. The vision forces us to consider, reconsider, and modify our beliefs. The moral arc of the universe is bending towards justice, but it's only through defining and redefining what justice means over time that it bends towards justice. A couple more. Know that Jesus' prayer is aspirational. When he says I, I, that you, me, may be one, he's actually talking about the people there with him and the people to come. And remember, it's Thursday night. It's Passover dinner. Jesus knows that his arrest, abuse, and death are only hours away and that the followers he's sitting with right now at dinner are going to be torn apart now and for the rest of their lives because of him. So Jesus prays, as you break and tear at and ignore and exile one another, know that the goal is for you to be one. This prayer is not blind. I know unity is not the status quo. But one day, Father, make it so that because of your work in their lives and across history, my followers will be united in their love for you and each other and will do amazing things to speak to how good you are. And finally, know that God's got this. Division is not new to the church, and God has been working through division throughout history. Read the Bible for its narratives and themes, and listen to narratives past and present in your families, neighborhoods, communities, in our nation that reinforce that God is worthy of our trust. Look for God working in narratives such as this. At St. Francis High School in La Cañada, California, there's something to be said about math teacher Jim O'Connor. Substitute back for why. The question is, what is that something? Or round it. When you think of him, does the word love come to mind? Obviously not. He's very, uh... For whatever reason, none of these kids would tell me what they really think of him. Oh, what's the word? Yeah, none of the boys have come in here and said, oh, God, we have hated him, you know, at times. Nobody said that. I wonder why. He's going to be seeing this, right? Oh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> Truth is, Mr. O'Connor can be a bit of a drudge. You don't know what you're doing. But the 70-year-old Vietnam vet says he's not here to entertain his students. It drives me crazy when people say school should be fun. I mean, it's nice if it could be, but you can't make school fun. E to the KT times E to the C. And for years. Okay. The kids thought that's all there was to him. Until last November, when senior Pat McGoldrick learned they didn't know the half of him. Pat was in charge of a student blood drive and had just come here to Children's Hospital Los Angeles for a meeting. He says it was weird. Whenever he told someone he went to St. Francis High School, they all said, oh, you must know Jim O'Connor. Isn't he wonderful? Wonderful? What? Like, and then it is disbelief, really. It's almost like kind of finding this alter ego that he has. Inside the blood donor center, Pat found a plaque listing all the top blood donors at the hospital, including the record holder, Jim O'Connor. Then he learned something even more unbelievable, that whenever Mr. O'Connor isn't torturing kids with calculus, he's on a whole nother tangent, cuddling 
sick babies. Come on, you can talk to me. Three days a week for the past 20 years, Jim has volunteered here. Stepping in when parents can't to hold, feed, and comfort their children. So low. Nurse Aaron Schmidt says he's invaluable. They tend to calm for him. They tend to relax with him. They fall asleep with him. I just like them and relate to them somehow. Is that a smile? Jim's never been married. He has no kids of his own. But he has fallen hard for these babies. I don't want to see him alone. You can't do that. You're not a tough guy at all. I know, but don't don't tell my students. (laughs) If you do the calculation... Sometimes you think you know someone, but you don't have the slightest. Sometimes you think you're learning calculus, but the real lesson is life. I've always, like, respected him, um, but now it's an even a, a different degree, really, is to the point where I, where I try to emulate him. He's the epitome of a man of service. What you doing? Steve Hartman, on the road, in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know, but if I found out that Jim O'Connor disagreed with me on issues like abortion or LGBTQ rights, would I no longer consider him to be a true follower of Jesus? If he had concerns about immigration or the Black Lives Matter movement, would I disown him as a brother in Christ? No. No, because although disagreement on these issues has real-life implications, I am united with him on this single issue in his concern and care for the least of us. When it comes to these children, the patients and the staff of Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, he is salt and he is light. I judge his thoughts and actions to be correct, I thank God for him. Consider that God has picked human beings as his co-workers, as his laborers, as his leaders. Flawed, biased, irrational, combative human beings to build God's kingdom. It makes no sense. But until you realize that this partnership is an act of love and trust, allowing for our mistakes and failures, because what will result from our attempts to lovingly uphold standards will be worth it, because our inclusion in the work is worth it. It changes things. The vision is never comfortable, but it can bring about positive change. As we judge how to act, how to advocate, how to reconcile, how to yield, and how to love one another amid our divisions, let us pray for the right balance between making God's kingdom happen, waiting for it to come about, and working alongside God. Please join me in praying the prayer, serenity prayer. It was written by Reinhold Niebuhr 70 years ago. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to know, distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. And now let us take part in the Lord's table, known as communion, union with God. It was at this moment 2,000 years ago that Jesus prayed for unity. And although we may disagree on many issues, we find unity here as one church one community, one people under God and with God. 
For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it 